Hey everybody, this is Tim from Tonebenders. Before we get to the really great guests we have today talking about their work on Andor, I want to remind you of a few quick things. I will be heading to Los Angeles at the end of February to attend the MPSC Golden Reel Awards on February 26 at the Wilshire Ebell Theatre. If any listeners are going to be there, please say hi. It's going to be a lot of fun. Tickets are still available up until February 19th and can be purchased through mpse.org. One of my all-time favorite comedians, Patton Oswalt, is hosting, so it's going to be a great night. I'm very much looking forward to it. Again, you can purchase tickets at mpse.org. If you cannot make it out to the Golden Reels, Tonebenders is hosting a sound design meetup a few days later at 7 p.m. on Tuesday, February 28th at the Thirsty Merchant in Studio City. We have the covered patio set aside for us, and I would love to meet as many L.A. sound people as I can while I'm in town. So come on out, raise a glass, talk some shop, and hang out with some great people. Please help spread the word if you can. Now, I've been told it's hard to get people in L.A. to come out to things, so let's try and prove those people wrong. Okay, now let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to Tonebenders, where we talk with the sonic artists behind our favorite films, series, and games. My name is Tim Muirhead, and I will be your host as we dive into the sound of the Disney Plus series, Andor, to find out exactly what a reckoning sounds like. The series is a prequel to the film Rogue One and takes place roughly five years before the events of the original Star Wars, A New Hope. It is one of the first major Star Wars properties to cover more ground-level characters in the Rising Rebellion. There are no Jedis or Siths. These are oppressed workers versus the Empire's middle management. Featuring new planets, new robots, and especially impressive dialogue, Andor feels like an exciting new path for the galaxy far, far away. Joining us today, we have the series supervising sound editors, David Accord and Margit Pfeiffer. Margit, welcome to the show. I think this is your first foray into the Star Wars universe, is that correct? It is my first time in the Star Wars universe, yes. Awesome. Well, that's, this is a great series to get started in. <laughs> right? We also have David Accord, who has been a long-time inhabitant of the Star Wars Sonic universe, with many films and series from the franchise under his belt, including The Mandalorian, which David talked to me about in Tonebenders episode number 153. Welcome back, David. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. No problem. Right off the bat, I'm just going to say I really loved this series. This series grabbed hold of me in a way that I wasn't expecting, because it's really much more emotional than a lot of other Star Wars projects. Projects. There are certain lines that I don't want to say on here in case they're spoilers, but some things just really were gut punches that I really uh, fell for. One of the things I found that maybe helped do that is this is a much more kind of ground level gritty version of Star Wars. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk, uh, we'll start with David, about how you used ambiences and the Foley, because the, they seem to play a major role to set the tone of this series. Sure. As you mentioned, this is a, this is a ground level, everyman view of the rebellion in the Star Wars universe in the early stages. The tone of the show and sort of the purpose of the show is to have a very realistic view of everyday life, very dangerous life for these rebels. It's like a diegetic approach to the story, and it requires a diegetic approach to the sound, which is 
um, what we're after is something that um, is very visceral. It's gritty and real, um, and it's not flashy. You know, when violence occurs, it's extremely violent and dangerous and 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 horrifying. And that's that's sort of what we're after in the show is to to show you not so pretty version of uh, what war uh, really can be. The the foley in particular is is useful in these instances where we can really highlight character movement, especially in a space. If you like, if you take like episode three when they're in the giant warehouse, they being Cassian and and the um, Luthen. Thank you. Oh my god, I should have done my homework. Huh. Um, when Luthen and Cassian are in the warehouse, there's a good example of ambience and and Foley sort of helping to tell the story. You know, they're in this giant space, kind of get the sense of the the scope of the space and the and the the emptiness of it. You know, all the the gritty footsteps and um, that's all that's happening in this is dialogue um, in that scene. But we we want to try and sell the idea invite the audience into this sort of very real, very cold space that they're in. And outside you can, we can hear beyond this, this space, beyond the sound of the air and the chains moving is that the alarm bangs that are going on throughout reminding you of, you know, that we're in this town and there's stuff happening out here and it's the sort of a, a bit of an impending doom of what's going to happen to our characters within the warehouse space. How are you getting out of here? My plan's gone. You're right. It's 40 clicks across the wastelands. You just need a speeder. What's the best option? West. Into town. Where does that go? Under the old furnace. Does it get us out of here? Yeah. It's the long way around. What is that? I put slap charges on the doors. What? When? Rule number two. Build your exit on your way in. Brace yourself. Margit, uh, how about filling out the ambiences with different languages of all the different creatures that inhabit this world? Early on in episode one, our main character goes to a bar that is kind of in the seedy part of town. And inside that bar, it feels like a full bar, but you're not hearing much English. Did you want to talk about how you approach that? Um, well, ultimately in the show, like it's a very international place. I mean, from that bar scene you mentioned, or Ferrix, it's an inter- which is an international trading hub. So we have all kinds of languages. And um, shooting in the UK this time, we also have a lot of British accents. And then it was important to keep the uh, fictional languages for the alien languages, Hatties, all alive. And we worked on that with Loop Group to have it in the background. Um, but we also had Canari uh, on the planet of Canari is a fictional language uh, made up for this. Aldani as well, which is in the later episodes. Uh, and it's fun. I, I enjoy having such a wide variety in this huge universe. There is a plot point within the series Andor that I think comes in in episode six or seven, where one of our main characters has been captured and she's not talking. And the way they're going to get her to talk is they're going to put a headset on her that plays something that's so horrifyingly horrible that it will melt her brain and she will tell them anything that they want to know just so she doesn't hear that sound. So I'm sure when the scripts arrive to you, you're just super excited about this moment. (laughs) But then what actually happens is when the headset goes on, the audience doesn't get to hear it at all. Everything is stripped away and all we hear is that character's breathing getting more tense, getting more tense until she lets out a horrible scream. Yeah. Do you want to talk about how you came to that ending? Did you ever uh, attempt at making the most horrible sound that would melt people's brains? Early, early, early on, 
John Gilroy is our uh, supervising picture editor, had some ideas about what the sound might be and how to go about relaying that sound to the audience, maybe some sort of binaural approach to, to the mix. Uh, I had my own ideas. Um, there were there were a number of ideas kind of got bantered around um, that kind of evolved and evolved and evolved. And ultimately, it was it was Tony that said, um, Tony Gilroy, it's going to be better if we don't hear it. And of course, he's absolutely right. It's a horrific moment. And in the world of horror, it's it's always scarier when you don't show the monster. Right. I mean, it's that's always the the sort of the rule is the. the the less you see the horrific thing, the scarier it is. Your mind, whatever you're going to create in your mind, is going to be way more terrifying. And of course, Adrian Arizona's performance uh, absolutely sells. You know the the sheer like just abject horror and grief on her face just listening to this sound. Um, you, we just get solely wrapped up in that long shot that kind of pushes in on her. Is uh, yeah, it's it's terrifying, much more so than anything we would have come up with. You'll want to be sure of that, Bix. That you're cooperating fully. It's repeat listenings that cause the most damage. Are we ready? Let's get on with it. It's an interesting twist on it, because as you say, you don't show the monster, but a lot of times when horror movies or tense films are not showing the creature, we're hearing it in the distance. And this is the, the reverse of that. We're seeing things, but we're not hearing things, which I can't even think of another example of that happening in, where the, the sound is the monster. It's, it was a really exciting moment. And uh, as they were describing it, I was like, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And then what, the way you approached it was not what I was expecting, but you're right, was way more psychologically invasive to my brain than uh, whatever you might have come up with. Although I would love to hear what you were going to come up with. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's the, the, yeah, yeah, the problem is, and if, if we had a sound in there, had we used, you know, any one of the dozen things we came up with, um, you might have had, you know, at best 20% of the audience might have said, oh, that's a really scary sound, you know, but you're alienating 80% of the audience. You know, I, I, I think that your best approach is always going to be to let the audience um, sort of define their own terror in that uh, instance. So in most Star Wars properties, uh, when I watch them, the things that really stick out are the amazing sound design, creating things from other worlds that feel real. In this series, one of the things that just stays with you is the monologues. There are some absolutely amazing monologues in this series. From Luthen's uh, What Have I Sacrificed speech, which is in like this underground area uh, with wind going on and stuff. So I'm sure that that was probably not 
easiest dialogue to mix. I don't know if it was ADR, but then the speech that... Uh, Nemec's speech? Nemec's oh. speech, that, but that you don't even see him saying it. It's, on, it's a recording. Uh, and then the big speech to rally everybody at the end. There's, there's other speeches as well, but right. like almost every episode has this stirring monologue in it that was really amazing. I w- wonder, Margit, if you could take us through uh, how those were, how easy were they to clean up? Was there any ADR involved? Because they were really moving for the viewers. We... Went mostly with production. So Marva and the tail end and Luthen were mostly production with a few line changes and additions here and there. Uh, and then Nemec was a voiceover at the tail end. So we recorded that on an ADR stage. Um, I think part of it he did in the studio in London and part of it we were in Paris remotely. The goal is to blend it so you wouldn't know which one came from where. And what do you sacrifice? Calm. Kindness, kinship. Love. I've given up all chance at inner peace. I made my mind a sunless face. I share my dreams with ghosts. I wake up every day to an equation I wrote 15 years ago from which there's only one conclusion. I'm damned for what I do. My anger, my ego, my unwillingness to yield, my my eagerness to fight. They set me on a path from which there's no escape. I yearn to be a savior against injustice without contemplating the cost. And by the time I looked down, there was no longer any ground beneath my feet. What is my, what is my sacrifice? I'm condemned to use the tools of my enemy to defeat them. I burn my decency for someone else's future. I burn my life to make a sunrise that I know I'll never see. Now the ego that started this fight will never have a, a mirror or an audience or, or the light of gratitude. So what do I sacrifice? Everything! Dialogue, editorial department, Margit's dialogue magic um, made that so much easier to mix than um, it might have otherwise <laughs> have been because you know all of those speeches Kino's Marva's like Luther they're all except for Nemex which is um, ADR it's all like 95 98 percent production so it's a lot of cleanup to do in those uh, really sort of busy windy um, production spaces kudos Thank you. And the other thing for the production, you know, uh, as this series was shot also on live sets, so they built a uh, five-block set for Ferrix, the town plaza. Production cleanup was important. Uh, There was a gravel road, which uh, doesn't translate all too well on your dialogue lines. It's just crunchy noise uh, that we had to get rid of. And overall in the series... um, approximately 1,000 ADR lines, which, of course, the goal is to always match them perfectly as much as you can so they wouldn't stand out and stick out. This series, it's multiple episodes long. I think I heard that it's about eight hours of final content. So each episode is somewhere in the 40-minute to a little longer than that range. It's a lot of content. You're doing a 1,000 lines of ADR uh, what was the schedule like? Were you doing it episode by episode or were you doing everything all at once? How did you tackle that, Margit? I started a little early to uh, grab some of the actors while they were still shooting on set. Ultimately, uh, we sh- broke it down into four blocks, so three episodes per block. But in the end, on a series, you end up you know, sometimes visiting all 12 episodes at the same time. So it's really important to be very organized and keep track of that. 
but everything's doable. Yeah, it was. It's certainly a lot of material. I mean, like you, like you said, it's uh, it's eight plus hours of feature quality material. Um, but the the schedule on this particular show was a, a little different than the other Lucasfilm shows in that it was a little more a little more spread out. So we have it's a smaller crew, more time, versus some of the other shows are larger crew, shorter time. It's just a different approach. Not not one's not better than the other. It's just. It was just a different approach to the to the material, yeah. So it, it uh, kept us busy for for a while. Um, did our final mixes at Delane Lee in in London. All the pre mixing was done at Skywalker. So it was a it was an international affair putting that mix together. Also, the ADR was interesting. I mean, also pre pandemic, we often had source connection sessions and all that. But this one we started uh, during the pandemic, so a lot of the ADR, including the loop group, I shot remotely. I was um, working out of London. And whoever was there from the actors, we shot uh, on location at all different kinds of ADR stages in town in Soho. And But then we had sessions all the way from Mexico to Stockholm to Paris to New York to L.A., uh, which I really enjoyed. I enjoy seeing a little window into, into any other place in the world and that you could even shoot Loop Group remotely. I was really impressed with. And I think it turned out um, in a wonderful way that you would never notice how it came together. Another plot point within the series that's a kind of cool sound moment. The town of Ferrix, when the Empire shows up, everybody starts rattling cans throughout the city to warn everybody that it's coming. And as a viewer, we're watching that happen and it slowly starts building. But then we're going inside buildings. We're going back out on the streets. We're in different parts of the city. I was wondering, uh, maybe David, you want to start with this? But how did you go about building that up and keeping the perspectives in hand so that it didn't feel uh, overwhelming? So I got to give some credit to our music editor, John Finkley, um, who helped put that together. Um, it was kind of collaboration, I guess, between uh, effects and music department putting those together. It was we wanted to have music department involved uh, for the put together a rhythm for it and sort of the tone of the sounds and, and that sort of thing. Um, and that's sort of their their forte. We you know provided a bunch of samples and then we kind of anyway it was a back and forth thing to kind of come up with the elements. And then in the in the mix, it was just kind of all about um, identifying the individual spaces where we are versus where the sounds are. If we're inside the warehouse, or if we're inside Marva's house, or if we're in the street, or you know wherever, all these different locations, what that sounds like in that space. So it was a lot of playing around with um, with reverbs and uh, and slap, and uh, maybe you know if we're in the warehouse, we're you know, you're hearing these six elements because they're closer to the warehouse. And if you're in Marvis house, it might be three of those elements plus four more from this other list over here. So all doing the same rhythm, but all slightly different sounds and all slightly different positions, speaker placement and reverb and, and all that stuff. Um, so that every time we change locations, you still hear it and it's still rhythmic and still in rhythm, but it's a little slightly different. It's, it's coming from a slightly different space. And it's um, hitting the room in a slightly different way every time. The other super impressive scene is the Eye of Aldani. Early on in one of the first times we see the meteor shower, it's an underwater shot looking up of one of our characters swimming over top. Mm -hmm. And it's literally one of the most beautiful shots. Like, I want a poster of that for my wall. Like, it is so beautiful. And then, like, once you saw what the computer graphics was outputting, there must have been some uh, pressure to match up to that with sound. Do you want to talk about your approach to that whole thing? 
Sure. Yeah, like that shot in particular, yeah, it's a pretty cool shot. I mean, we have the meteor sound. That we came up with, which is we wanted something that was it, because the end of the episode, we have multiple meteors and it's sort of this beautiful choral thing that's happening. So early in the episode, when you have just sort of singular meteors, I wanted it to have like a sort of a slight vocal quality to it, like the individual singer kind of going by versus like the end where it's a whole chorus of them. So kind of hinting at what is going to come the individual meters, meteors that, that pass by. So when we're underwater, of course, you know, that's, that's always like a fun opportunity for mix and sound design to make, you know, skew sounds a little bit. And you're, you kind of have somewhat of free reign of how you approach that. You know, you can go totally literal with, you know, how something might sound underwater, or you can kind of play with it a little bit. And we kind of went somewhere in between with that moment to kind of keep the beauty of it. And uh, because it's such a pretty shot, you're right. And, uh, but also sort of, you know, keep the, the diegetic feel that we're still underwater. This is, this is reality though. We like to have poke out little moments here and there. And, and again, to hint at what's to come later in the episode. So later in the episode, when the, the meteor shower is in full effect and there's stuff flying everywhere, we are, we fly into it on the escape. The sound of meteors and the sound of uh, spaceships, jets and stuff would be in the same kind of frequency range mm. when you first start thinking about that. How did you approach a way to differentiate those? You have your frequency ranges here and what can I feature and what can't I feature? Because you're right. If you have your meteor buys and your jet engines are all sort of sitting like around, I don't know, like 800 Hertz or something, you know, then, then yeah, it's, it, it, Pick one, basically, because you're not going to hear both of them. So, yeah, we have a slightly different register, you know, for the for meteor buys. They're a little more whistly, a little more tonal. Jets or engines of the ship are a little bit lower. Um, and then you have all the whooshes of all the ships, of all the meteors sort of zipping by, which is its own thing. And it's also as much about placement as it is about tone too if i can separate things in center versus left and right but then you you got music as well comes in um and, and then you get into the situation like in that meteor sequence you know, tie fighters and ships and lasers and impacts and you got dialogue and you got music then you have to start getting a little more uh brutal with the you know with with the faders and like okay this is what we want to hear you know we're gonna dump all this we're going to feature, this is, this is music and dialogue. Obviously, we want to hear that. We want to hear this sound right here. Um, we're, we're inside the ship. I want to hear, like, the rumble of the ship. And then we're outside. I just, I just want to hear that meteor and that meteor and that meteor. I just want to hear this tie. And you try and go over it and over and over again. What can I get away with? Can I eke that into? Now that's muddying it up. Let's pull that back out. That that whole sequence was probably the hardest thing to mix in the entire series, for sure. Just because of that, there was so much going on all at once. And then at the same time, you're trying to sell the build of it all. You know, you're trying to let it build. It sort of starts from here and build up to this, you know, massive moment at the end where they break through and that last TIE fighter explodes and boom, and then we're, we're off. Come on. 
have that sort of crescendo and then that sort of ah moment when we're down back on the planet and the meteors are sort of cascading over us. That's, that's the, that was sort of the, the trick of it all is to um, have us all sort of earn that, that sort of moment of rest at the end when the, the big coral of meteor, the pretty moment when the coral of meteor is a sort of passing overhead. That sonic build is one of my favorite moments in the whole series. Like it really gives me goosebumps every single time. <laughs> <laughs> We've seen it many, many times. It's many really times. Yeah. excellent. <laughs> Well, speaking of goosebumps, that scene we're talking about, the Eye of Aldani, is kind of the uh, the centerpiece of the first half of the series. The big crescendo of the back half of the series is back on Fenix, and there is a uh, funeral for one of our earlier main characters. It's a lot of crowd scenes. I, I assume most of these crowds were actual people being shot, not digitally created later. But uh, do you want to talk, uh, Margit, about how you tackled building up these crowds? Because sometimes they're chanting, sometimes they're rebelling, sometimes they're screaming. Uh, how did you build the waves of emotion through the crowds? Sure. So the crowd on the on the tales scene there, there was a lot of extras on set. So they really had a lot of people. We recorded that, of course. And then the chant was embellished also with the loop group. So you can feature the closer up characters that you see the lips moving. You want to have something individual to feature. And then you want to work with several beds. And then you want to create a thickness in those beds with all kinds of different tricks from the few tracks you have, the few takes and flesh it out. And then for the more detailed uh, action and battles, you have to shoot uh, some of the, you know, I, I go by the visual section. I want to see, if I see something that pokes out and, and wants to draw attention to it and there's room for it in the story, uh, I will shoot something. And that could be death grunts, yells, screams, pained efforts. Uh, and then, you know, obviously like always a, a some sort of a bed. But with the consideration of not going too thick, I don't want to clutter the track for Dave to have to mix around it. Uh, it should play along with the whatever you feature. You know, sometimes you feature the sound effects, sometimes the music will ride all 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 through the scene. And so I'm trying to to keep the human element alive in those scenes. So you mentioned that there's tricks to fill it out. What are these tricks that you're using? <laughs> Well, the tricks I'm using, uh, you know, you, you can sort of double up things and pitch them up and down and then sort of delay them or advance them a little bit, depending on what feels right. But um, if you have the opportunity and you have multiple takes, of course, it's worth uh, grabbing every single take and seeing how you can line them up with chanting. You know, like sometimes you have a great production track, sometimes you don't. For the Altani chanting, I had a training. So they sort of did a rehearsal and had a drum beat going through. So for that, um, I had to make sure that I kept the rhythm and the ins and outs of it. The, the starts and tail ends of these chants are often hard to match. Um, so I try and shoot that with loop group as uh, when I can and just give it the, the dynamics and the close-ups. That Aldani chanting uh, stuff in six is phenomenal. What Margie did with the loop group and, and how that cuts. We cut back to them chanting and that sort of... Uh, that rhythm sort of matches the our heist moment and that back and forth thing. That, that's that's a really fun thing, and I uh, I thought that worked really well. So the last kind of uh, movement of the series that we haven't talked about is the interior of the uh, jail, Narkina, uh, the prison. It, it has a very different feel than the rest of the series. Maybe we can talk about the idea of Foley when a plot point is that nobody's wearing shoes. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's really a great question. Yeah, in in Narkina Five in the in the prison, the main security uh, system that they have in place is this sort of electrified uh, floor. The guards wear mm-hmm. boots that kind of protect them from the floor, and and the uh, inmates are, are barefoot, so they're completely at the mercy of the of that floor weapon. That's a fun foley thing to do, and a hard thing to sell is bare feet on on floor. When you get those moments where you got to actually see bare feet moving on the floor, you definitely really want to hear those feet and kind of remind people of what that sound is. Then you get some other fun things, bare feet on wet floor when Cassian is busting the pipes and, you know, to speak of, of plot points and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge plot point in, in, in the show is uh, that idea that the floor is dangerous. And you kind of sell that a lot with the sound of, um, of Foley. And our, our Foley crew, um, who's uh, uh, John Resch and Shelley Roden, um, our Foley walkers are, are phenomenal. That was John, one of John, John Resch who's just retiring. That was one of his last projects. Um, he worked on one of the original Star Wars shows. like um, So it was kind of fun to have John on uh, for one of his last projects to be a Star Wars show. So the crowds in the prison, again, we featured certain moments, but you also always wanted, wanted to have a bed and you wanted to be able to delineate um, the different locations. There are several prison floors, there's a day and night shift, there are corridors they walk through, and you wanted each element to sound a little different. You want to, of course, uh, cover the scene with what the action within it, but you don't want to clutter it. Again, you know, having a wall-to-wall crowd sound within that prison, you don't want to focus on that and hear it all the time. You want to leave room, you want to focus on the dialogue, you want to hear the music, the foley, especially in the in all these scenes as well, all the props, and uh, you just want to not crowd it. Uh, less is more. As I mentioned earlier, I really, really enjoyed this show. I want to thank you very much for talking to me about it today because uh, I had a lot of questions, and I, I really love the way sound was kind of built into it with things like the bare feet and the torture device that was sound. It would have been a really fun show to work on, and uh, I'm glad that you guys just took that. Uh, pitch knocked it right out of the park because it was was really fun so uh, i'm looking forward to season two i don't know if you guys will be working on it but uh i can't wait for it to come out we will yeah (laughs) yep we'll be back (laughs) (laughs) awesome thank you very much it was great having you on thanks man thank you so much tim have a great day see ya before i let you go just a quick reminder to our listeners in the los angeles area There will be a Tonebenders sound design meetup at 7 p.m. on Tuesday, February 28th at the Thirsty Merchant in Studio City. We have the patio reserved, and it would be great to hang out and talk shop with everyone. Also, don't forget about the MPSC Golden Reel Awards on February 26th at the Wilshire Ebell Theatre. It's going to be a lot of fun. Tickets are still available up until February 19th and can be purchased through mpsc.org. Please make sure you say hi to me at one of the receptions before or after the awards. On behalf of David and Margit from Andor, my name is Tim Muirhead. Thanks for tuning in. Thumbbenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? ToneBenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.